This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. And um, Claudette, I see that the cloud has started to move in in VOCM Valley. Yes, I'm still hoping we're going to see the moon tonight, that rare no. super moon. No, please, please, please. No, sorry. <laughs> well, it'll stick around for a couple of days, at least until Friday morning, so I still have a chance. Yeah, I've seen some pictures of it, by the way, you know, through yeah. places other than here. <laughs> uh, yeah, just amazing. Uh, but I just had a look at the radar. And? And the rain is right there oh it's <laughs> so if the rain hasn't started following in your area yet it get will. ready it will uh by the looks of it we could see rain starting to fall here in the st john's region before the end of this program which is five o'clock oh, so fun. uh just in time for our ride home for your ride home so be aware of that keep your speeds down and uh expect some delays we could have some thunderstorms too yeah I, how do you feel about thunderstorms what is your take <laughs> on thunderstorms i actually i i don't mind it at all and my dog doesn't seem to care as well so yeah no i i kind of like it i like being inside looking out at it now i know people who are just terrified and they'd have to kind of curl up with somebody but i'm not one of those people you i kind of like them yeah uh kind of yeah. excited by them yeah oh there was this phenomenon linda i what uh, so this morning now i i mean my memory is shot <laughs> But there was, I remember because I played St. Elmo's Fire today, this afternoon. I didn't know that that was also a weather phenomenon. Yes. Um, and some pilots in Tampa before Hurricane Adelia um, came in, uh, they witnessed it in, in the air. And it was some sort of like, I don't know, it's hard to explain really in radio, but I had to look at the video to, to see it. It's like lightning, but not because it doesn't go from the cloud to the ground. It's just in midair and it's like a plasma kind of look yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah. I found that fascinating. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated with pilots weather. Pilots see all kinds of stuff. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. But I do like uh, thunderstorms. But like you say now, um, your dog might, might not mind it, but my dog freaks out. Frightened, like shivering, yes, like Yes, and like clung to you. Yeah, which like is Like all so of a sudden sad. you realize, why? what's this weight <laughs> I got on my side here? And it, it's, it's her going, oh, yeah. what's going on, Mom? Uh, anyway, yeah, she's one of them. But um, so we're going to expect to see the rain soon. Uh, they're already experiencing rain on the south coast. And in fact, there are heavy rainfall warnings in effect for the entire southern portion of Newfoundland. Thanks to this weather system, which is moving in from the Great Lakes. Rainfall amounts of up to 100 millimeters expected in areas like Portabasque, and we heard from the mayor yesterday. Uh, Environment Canada meteorologist David Neal spoke with my colleague um, Noah Shepard just a short while ago. So looking at the southwest, oh, as you mentioned, we, we do have uh, rainfall warnings in effect for the entire south coast of the island, plus uh, portions of the west coast as far as uh, the Cornerbrook Bay of Islands uh, area. Uh, also in Labrador, a couple of sections there uh, of the one section of the Trans-Labrador Highway and then uh, Cartwright, Cartwright Junction area. Uh, but uh, for the southwest coast, that's kind of where we, uh, we're currently expecting to see the, the highest rainfall. That said, there's still some, indi uh, some indications that some of those higher, uh, kind of the the higher amounts may also fall elsewhere along the, in the southeast as well. Uh, but uh, looking right now southwest, we're uh, generally expecting total rainfall in the 50 to 100 millimeter range. Um, 
there is still the possibility it could see some local amounts uh, that could be a little bit higher than that. So that's kind of what we're looking at now for uh, Southwest. That's, uh, that's uh, for the section from uh, from basically Port of Basque over to the Conagra Peninsula right now. And of course, uh, with weather like this, a lot of people will think back to Hurricane Fiona and all the damage that was done there. Um, for areas that might already be, uh, you know, uh, damaged or still recovering, um, is there any concerns of washouts, flooding, and even more damage? Uh, certainly with these types of rainfall, uh, this, this type of rainfall that we're uh, see, uh, seeing and that we're, uh, we're forecasting, certainly that, uh, that risk is, uh, is certainly there uh, where you could, uh, could get uh, some, some local road washouts and you could see uh, obviously some, uh, some, some issues like that. And uh, so certainly something that we're, we're going to continue to keep an eye on. But yes, uh, definitely, uh, definitely a significant uh, amount of rain coming for, uh, for the southwest coast and really for, for a fairly large area of uh, of the province uh with with this uh, storm that's coming through in terms of storm surge is there uh, any concerns that way uh, well, with the, the there's two storms coming there. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk of, of uh, Hurricane Franklin. That it does look like that storm is going to pass well to the south of Newfoundland uh, at this time. There's also that other storm which is bringing this rainfall uh, that's going to move through uh, through the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Um, with both of those storms, we do expect some uh, some high waves. Uh, certainly, with Franklin, some high swells that uh, that are going to make uh, make their way north and and across the the south coast of the island. And then that other storm, as it passes uh, uh, northeast of Newfoundland, uh, some more high waves coming down along parts of the coast in Labrador and, and the northeast coast of Newfoundland. In terms of storm surge, in terms of flooding, right now it looks like a, a fairly low risk of, uh, of flooding, but uh, certainly uh, expecting some uh, some high waves and some pounding surf near the short, near the coastline so uh, certainly uh, would like to keep people away from the uh, away from the coastlines uh, uh, for, for these uh, for these two storms but in terms of actual like storm surge and, and flooding flooding risk right now with this is, is low but with that said we're going to keep uh, obviously keep our eye on that for the next uh, especially over the next day or so and see how that uh, how that's uh, behaving. You mentioned Hurricane Franklin, but of course uh, Hurricane Idalia has also started to affect some areas. Uh, are we going to see any effects from then? Uh, as a stand right now, it looks like uh, Dahlia is going to uh, when it will move off the uh, the U.S. East Coast uh, tomorrow. It kind of just hangs out uh, well, well south uh, south of us for the next uh, really into uh, into next week. So as a stand right now, uh, not expecting uh, much for for our neck of the woods with the Dahlia, but of course, for, as always, we're going to keep uh, keep our eyes uh, peeled on on that system as well, uh, just to uh, just to sure that that remains the case but uh, certainly right now the the big uh, the big story is uh, um, well even uh, is really that other storm that's coming through the uh, coming through the gulf uh, but yeah certainly uh, still still uh, keeping an eye out on franklin and and Adalia as well so that's David Neal, uh, Environment Canada meteorologist, speaking with VOCM's Noah Shepard uh, a little earlier today. Some uh, 100 millimeters of rain expected in some areas that could overwhelm uh, some storm system, sewers and, and the like, and uh, washout roads. So just be aware of that if you're traveling around. And if you don't have to go anywhere tonight, well, why would you? Uh, so just be aware of that. Um, when we come back, we're going to get an update on... Um, uh, 
the province's uh, call for bids on uh, the development of crown lands for hydrogen wind development. Uh, Andrew Parsons provided an update earlier today and we'll check in with the NLTA about the upcoming school year. This is News Talk on VOCM. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And we're back. Well, four new hydrogen production and wind energy projects have moved on to the next phase of development now that the provincial government has whittled down a list of 24 applications as part of a call for bids for crown lands available for wind development. Energy Minister Andrew Parsons provided this update earlier today. It has been a busy 20 months for the renewable energy team, beginning with the launch of our renewable energy plan back in December of 21. Uh, following the call for nominations of Crown Land in July of last year, we launched a Crown Land call for bids for wind energy projects in December of 22. Now in the background of this, we have included a timeline of each step that we have taken. The call for bids closed on March 23rd, 2023, with 24 bids received from 19 companies. Four bids were received after the deadline and were not accepted. Two bids were for wind farms outside of the land reserve area and were disqualified. Bids were subject to a two-phase assessment conducted by an evaluation committee with representation from IET, Finance, Indigenous Affairs and Reconciliation, Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro, a third-party financial and business analyst, EY, a third-party technical advisory, Power Advisory, uh, third-party project management and risk management analyst, which was EY, and a fairness advisor, which was Optimus SBR Inc. The first stage was a pass-fail assessment of the bids across key criteria, such as the bidder's experience and their financial capacity to plan and construct and to operate the uh, proposed project. In July, just a month ago, nine bids from nine companies advanced to stage two. The nine bids that progressed to stage two were each assessed based on responses to 65 questions across eight categories to identify a score and a ranking. Categories included bidder, project, project risk mitigation, electricity considerations and grid, uh, community and indigenous engagement, benefits, project schedule, and financing. The following factors were considered when comparing bids. Uh, the evaluation committee scores and score justifications, overlapping land between bids, uh, power requirements and whether the grid could support the proposed project, and fiscal and economic impacts. As a result of the analysis undertaken, I am pleased today to announce the completion of the call for bids for wind hydrogen development in our province, and that four companies will receive wind application recommendation letters. Duglucatic Wind and Hydrogen Limited, or ABO, Everwind NL Company, Exploits Valley Renewable Energy Corporation, and World Energy GH2 Inc. ABO, is proposing a three-phase wind energy project in the Isthmus region to produce and export hydrogen ammonia with Brea renewable fuels through the joint development of green hydrogen production at the Come By Chance refinery. Everwind is proposing a multi-phase wind energy project to produce and export hydrogen ammonia from facilities on the Buren Peninsula. Exploits Valley Renewable Energy Corporation, or EVREC, is proposing a multi-phase wind energy project in central Newfoundland and a hydrogen ammonia production facility in Botwood to produce and export green hydrogen and ammonia. 
And finally, World Energy GH2 is proposing a three-phase wind energy project on our west coast and a hydrogen ammonia production facility in the town of Stephenville to produce and export green hydrogen ammonia. The construction, operations, and decommissioning phases of these four projects, which range from 35 to 40 years, are anticipated to have an overall economic impact in terms of GDP of $206.2 billion and revenue to the province of $11.7 billion. Based on project plans, peak employment is estimated at 11,694 full-time equivalents during construction, and the total capital spend is estimated at $66.3 billion. Projects will be required to have benefit plans with the province, including commitments to full and fair opportunity, as well as a gender equity and diversity plan that outlines proactive measures for the inclusion of women and other underrepresented groups. These plans will be required prior to EA approval. Further policy work is ongoing, and part of it also will be decommissioning plans that are required before Crown land is awarded. So in terms of next steps, today we have the issuance of recommendation letters to four bidders, which is the next step in the development of this industry in our province. And I want to make clear, this is not the green light for projects to begin construction today. These four companies now have the right to pursue development of their project and can proceed through the Government of Newfoundland and Labrador's Crown Land application and approval process. Environmental assessment registration is required prior to final award of Crown Land, and an environmental assessment will be required for these wind projects. Request, request for connection to the provincial electricity grid to support hydrogen production and or rates other than the published rates will be subject to PUB regulation. Newfoundland and Labrador has some of the best onshore wind resources in North America which can be used to power wind turbines, generate electricity for industrial users and customers through export through transmission lines and the production and export of hydrogen and ammonia. I'm certainly pleased today to say that these four projects have been independently reviewed and determined to provide the overall greatest benefit to the province. I look forward to these moving through the next stages of review and I'm excited about the economic opportunities that these projects will bring to the province in the years to come. So not the green light per se, but it does allow these four companies to uh, move forward in the process uh, towards development of their proposed projects. Um, if you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Well, the new school year upon us, and we thought now would be a good time to check in with the teachers union to see what progress, if any, has been made in the recruitment and retention of teachers in this province. Trent Langdon is president of the NLTA, and he joins me now. Well, hello, Trent Langdon. Hey, Linda. How you been? Good. It's Good. the most wonderful time. <laughs> um, a lot of people make jokes about it, about kids going back to school, but it's an exciting time. Uh, are things ready? Uh, well, we like to think so. Uh, our members are certainly heading back, and many of them have been back into schools already. Certainly our administrators getting things ready to go. Uh, a lot of hiring takes place over the summer, so our administration has, has been responsible for some of that stuff. And uh, But many teachers, uh, they, they try to let go a little bit over the summer, but uh, many of them have their minds on prepping. And certainly in the last week or two, uh, there's been there's been focus on getting back and getting prepped. 
You said a lot of hiring goes on during the summer, and I know that's been a concern in the past because sometimes uh, uh, teachers, especially new teachers, uh, don't get that notification until quite late into the year. I understand that that's happening a little earlier now. Is is that happening, and is that a better approach? Yeah, that's been a suggestion of ours for some time, and, and the district is, is are certainly working hard to, to do hiring quicker and and, uh, and making sure the positions are filled earlier because everyone benefits, obviously, when, when that's the case. Uh, if, a, if a teacher knows uh, in advance what they're going to be teaching, uh, you know, certainly what courses they may be teaching, what grade level. Uh, even in what school uh, makes a big difference as to what job you're walking into versus the week before or even the day before. Um, so it's, uh, you know, our, we always encourage hiring to don- be done as soon as possible where possible. Uh, we do understand fully that there's hard-to-fill positions that historically has been the case around the province and are a bit more challenging, and we're work on, working on solutions for those. But uh, uh, it's it's kind of the reality in this province. There's a lot of nooks and crannies that need to be filled, and uh, uh, it's, it's a constant battle. But, yeah, it's, we've seen some improvement this year in terms of earlier hirings. And in terms of uh, filling those hard-to-fill spots, like you say, any improvements there? Yeah, again, we've we've seen some seen some improvements. Uh, the incentivization for some some positions is helping. Um, the district has hired a recruiter uh, with in-house type thing, a, a former educator and former district person to to be a recruiter, which is, which is helping no doubt. Uh, and so, at least to us, that's an acknowledgement. There's an issue, and there, there's never been any kickback that's been heard to to fill those positions. Uh, our suggestion is ultimately down the road, once uh, NLESD is absorbed in the government, is that there be a long term plan as to how we're going to once and for all hit these issues. So this is nothing new. Um, I guess how it's been exacerbated in recent years is uh, um, ultimately there's been a, a shortage of substitute teachers. There's there's less people, it seems, staying in the education field. Um, the cost of living in, in rural uh, areas is harder. And as a result, people are choosing, even if they have an education degree, I guess, to to seek uh, other types of employment or other, other sectors. Um, so there's, there's multiple reasons why there's there stressors, uh, but certainly the cost of living uh, in remote rural areas um, and, and just the travel to and from uh, into Labrador and other remote areas, very heavy. And so, you know, all of those things come together to, to create the, the challenges in hiring. You mentioned substitute teachers there, and I know that was a big issue, especially at the height of the pandemic. Um, how are we doing in recruiting uh, substitute teachers or at least having them on the ready? Yeah, and so it's it's, it's all uh, part and parcel of the same issue, Linda, to be honest. Uh, a teacher is a teacher, and it's just some people find themselves in permanent positions, some in term positions, and some as substitutes. It's been very common in, in this province that it's kind of a pipeline into a, a term and permanent position as you start off substitute teaching. Um, some people do choose a substitute for their career, and uh, but they they are out there, but the majority would be looking at the other means. Uh, so there, there is a shortage. Uh, of people in the system, uh, and that's not just in this province. It's right across the country and, and right around the world, really. Uh, last count I heard in, in my dealings with the Canadian Teachers Federation is they're short, uh, I believe, it's 30 million teachers worldwide. Uh, so you can imagine the developing countries. Uh, it's hard enough in the developed countries like ourselves to, to keep things moving, let alone in the in the other areas. Um, so when we're dealing with that global crisis in education, uh, we're feeling it here. We do need to be a bit more creative in finding ways that work for lack Labrador. Um, in many ways, Labrador is very unique, and it needs to be treated as such when you're looking at recruitment and retention. Uh, but who would have ever thought that we'd be struggling to find substitute teachers, uh, a consistent flow of substitute teachers, say in Cornerbrook or in St. John's? No one would have ever thought it. So that just demonstrate the, demonstrates the significance of the problem.
And what about the age-old uh, question about uh, classroom supports for teachers? Uh, because right. uh, there's, you know, our classrooms are made up of all these little individuals, and uh, each one of them, you know, approaches learning in a different way, and all that good stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. what about those all-important classroom supports? Yeah, so you would have heard in recent years, our uh, our push has been class size counts. That's been our tagline. Um, and ultimately, that's that's a way of getting the conversation started. But ultimately, if you really dig into it, it is, it's more so about the composition of the room. If you have 30 individuals in that room uh, and you are simply able to teach and, and there's no learning concerns whatsoever, no behavioral concerns, no socioeconomic concerns or behavioral, you know, all of those types of things, uh, even then it would be difficult to meet the needs of all 30. But when you start adding in the, the complex nature of our classrooms, um, the classroom itself then becomes uh, um uh, I guess it becomes difficult to uh, to find the proper means uh, to to truly meet the needs of all those children. And, and many times, where when we hear of shortages, we hear we see teachers being redeployed. Uh, for example, a reading specialist who's been hired may, on any given day may be pulled from the reading specialty position to say cover go cover grade three, or uh, a phys ed teacher who is uh, normally in in the gymnasium uh, is being pulled to cover off a, a high school slot um, when they're specialties are in those other areas, and by virtue of redeployment, uh, you are losing that service or that any given day. And that's happening more frequently than, than we'd like to, to be happening, and I'm not sure if the public is aware of that, because the other tagline we've been using is the hidden reality, and that our schools are remaining open, but it's uh, it's a very much a case of, um, in a lot of schools, a reduced service where on any given day, it, it may look different. And, and that's the worrisome piece. It's hidden, and it's not like your emergency rooms where if an emergency room is closed, that uh, uh, it's obvious. And uh, so that that's the heaviness that teachers are feeling heading back in school. Trent Langdon, really appreciate your time. Thanks. Always a pleasure, Linda. Let's stay connected. And Trent is the uh, president of the NLTA. We're up to news time now with Richard Duggan. Uh, when we come back, CNL raising the alarm after learning an enterprise owner lost everything to a processor, and he's not sure why. This is News Talk on VOCM. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. And we're back. And uh, Claudette, I don't know if you saw it, but uh, Richard Duggan just mentioned it in VOCM News at 4.30 there that uh, uh, this young woman, Nakia uh, Howlett, uh, was driving on the Robert E. Howlett um, um, Highway, Mm -hmm. better known as the uh, Goulds Bypass by some, if you know what I mean. She was driving that last night around 10 o'clock, struck a moose. Um, which is the age-old story. We hear about these kinds of uh, stories all the time. But she posted her dash cam footage just to show how quickly that can happen. And it is shocking. She's just driving along. She says she was driving below the speed limit. And just, boom, there was the moose. Boom. Struck it. No way. There's no way, even looking at that video, she could have avoided it. It's uh, a really... And she wanted people to see that to make them understand that it is possible it can happen yeah it i mean i do believe that i haven't seen the video but i myself just even being on atv going really slow on a road i remember a couple just came in front of me but i had and it was dark no you know opportunity to react you just see it 
and that was it. I mean, it, they just happen so fast, and it's almost like they come out of nowhere and so quietly. It's why I get how you have no time. Thankfully, she's okay. Yeah, yeah. thankfully. She said just a few bruises and the like. We do have to be vigilant for sure. We reached out to her to speak to her. She said, I'm not really much of a radio person, but she did send us all the information. She was more than happy to share it with us. So we thank her for that. But um, uh, wow, Um, just a little reminder that it can happen anywhere. It's happened here on Kenmount Road, for goodness sake. Yeah. In the middle of the day. Um, Southern Shore Highway, too, I find, you know, especially with all the bends in, in the road, I'm always just a little bit apprehensive if I'm driving on that particular road at night even if you you know you're driving with someone you want that person to be equally as alert that's what <laughs> I always say if I'm driving I say you're, you're my not, moose eyes yes uh, not that I'm not looking but you but need somebody else I, you need yeah. that second set of eyes because I've been driving with people and I say oh my goodness moose and they're like where 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 it's like right there yeah where right so they do tend to blend in they do yeah. yeah and i don't know where they cut it just happens so fast like yeah, she said it really does. It, it's, it's stunning and it w- what's amazing is that you see the legs right because they have that yeah. little bit of white fur on mm-hmm. the legs and you see the legs uh, all of a sudden bleh. anyway Ooh. Anyway, uh, it's worth your while, if you haven't already, to uh, see that video. We've got it posted up on VOCM.com. Well, the executive director of CNL, which advocates for inshore enterprise owners, is raising the alarm after learning one harvester lost it all to a fish processor, which gained full control of his enterprise. Ryan Cleary says DFO is investigating the case. He joins me now. Well, hello, Ryan. Uh, hi, Lynn. How's it going? Good, good. So, um, CNL encouraging inshore owner operators who have lost control of their commercial licenses to to speak up and contact DFO. What uh, what are you talking about here? What's going on? I'll give you a little bit of background on this, then, Linda. Uh, back in June, I wrote uh, the DFO minister, uh, Joyce Murray, the former minister, and I wrote her to request an investigation into the case of an inshore license holder, a small boat owner, who had lost control of his multi-million-dollar fishing enterprise to a fish processor. Now, the enterprise included a boat, it included gear, and included licenses, including snow crab. And the fisherman in question, who I can't name, and his family were left without a dime or a clue, a real understanding of how it happened, how they had lost control. So as a result of writing that letter to the federal minister, DFO launched an investigation and has been, and DFO has been investigating similar cases. So that's the background of what happened. The bottom line is you've got inshore harvesters, license holders, who are not in control of their licenses. In this particular case, you had a, it was an elderly fisherman. I, I can't, again, I can't give many details because it's being actively investigated, but you have a fisherman, uh, a lifelong fisherman, uh, licenses, an enterprise, uh, and to make a long story short, again, without getting into detail, lost it all, lost the enterprises, lost control of the licenses. And uh, when he came to me uh, in the spring, um, and we went to DFO. DFO has launched an investigation, and now they have uh, other cases as well that they're looking into. So in essence, what, what do you believe is happening here? Well, um, what's going on here is 
DFO has an owner-operator policy that requires licensed fishermen and women to fish their licenses themselves and to reap the rewards. That's the owner-operator policy. And the rationale, Linda, is to promote small-scale fishermen to prevent large companies, big companies, from accumulating multiple licenses. The problem is companies have been accumulating interlicenses or controlling enterprises through financial or controlling agreements. That's the problem. The problem is processing companies that control inshore, inshore fishermen, inshore boats through these financial or these controlling agreements. So what we're doing, Linda, is we're encouraging inshore enterprise owners who may have lost control of their of their commercial licenses or their boat to contact Fisheries and Oceans. And again, Fisheries and Oceans is actively invest, investigating several cases where that has happened. By law, this is what it comes down to. By law, licensed inshore harvesters must be independent. They must be solely in control of their enterprises, their licenses, and their catches. And if you are not, then CNL encourages you to take control to contact DFO, to have this investigated, and to have it straightened out. So what's the concern here, that this might become more prevalent, that uh, companies might start gobbling up some of these enterprises? That's exactly right. The concern here is that um, small boat uh, license holders in Newfoundland and Labrador uh, may not control their enterprises, may not control their licenses. That control may be in the hand of processors. So what we're saying to owner-operators, and this is a direct appeal, if you don't control your enterprise, if you don't control your fishing, your commercial fishing licenses, contact DFO and have this straightened out. You are supposed to have control, the license holder, not the, not the financier, not the, the processor who gives you money. You're to have control. Is there a recourse here for people who might be affected? The recourse is to go to directly to DFO. So, again, when I was approached by uh, an inshore enterprise owner uh, in the spring, uh, he had, I had licenses, had, uh, had an enterprise. The bottom, the bottom line is he lost all control. The recourse is to go to DFO. DFO is the only one, the only entity that can investigate and get this straightened out. As an enterprise owner, you have to know, um, you have to know your rights. And you have, uh, by law, um, it's you who controls your enterprise, your licenses, uh, your quota. Uh, and if it's not that way, if a, if a processor, if anybody other than you controls your enterprise, then go to DFO and have this straightened out. This needs to be this is a this is a real tangle, Linda, that needs to be straightened out. And please, God, that will be done when DFO is finished finished its investigation. Ryan Cleary, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Have a great day. And uh, Ryan Cleary is the executive director of CNL. Well, coming up, NLC posts its first quarter results for 2024. This is News Talk on VOCM. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. 
And we're back. Well, the Newfoundland and Labrador Liquor Commission reporting a slight increase in net earnings for the quarter ending July the 1st. Uh, CEO of the NLC, Bruce Keating, is on the line. Well, Bruce Keating, NLC, released its uh, financial results for the first quarter of, now this is going to confuse people, I know, 2024, but it's the first quarter of this year. Um, What are the results? Uh, the overall results, uh, there's more challenging, I guess, market conditions from a sales perspective. Uh, so overall, our net earnings were up slightly over the same quarter last year. They were up about a half a percentage point uh, to $47.6 million for the three months ending uh, at the end of June. Uh, beverage alcohol was down slightly at 1.6%, uh, and there's some significant growth on the cannabis uh, side uh, with growth of 25.6% on that side. So so that's been uh, the first quarter as we get into the year. But as I say, the market conditions have been more challenging this year, certainly on the beverage alcohol side. So what do you mean by that? What, what kind of market challenges are you facing? Well, I think what we're seeing as we look at... Uh, uh, what's happening in this province, but we're also seeing it across other jurisdictions in the country as well. Uh, I think it's the impact generally of the of the economic conditions that are existing with uh, inflation and interest rates and the impact that's having on disposable income. Uh, and I think here in this province as well, we've also seen some of the weather that we've experienced through the first quarter, uh, particularly here on the eastern part of the island. And uh, when we look at uh, some of the tourism activity as well, we obviously had a very, very strong kind of promotional push on tourism last year with Come Home Year. And things like that, I think, come into the mix a little bit as well. So it looks like the big news is uh, cannabis, some uh, really big increases in um, in growth there. Yeah, cannabis sales and with that objective of getting after the illicit market uh, has continued to really perform well. And uh, say with now 25.6% increase in the quarter, part of that is due to the decision in the fall of last year, October the 1st, to legalize uh, vape. So vape has been a significant part of the growth when we compare it to the first quarter last year when vape wasn't legalized. And, uh, and that's been a big factor, but that's really been helpful in going after the illicit market as well. And uh, we have a way of looking at, and it's not a perfect way that we in other provinces use it, to look at what percentage of the, the total market is now a legal market. And about three, three and a half years ago, we were probably looking at somewhere between 20 and 25%. And based on that way of determining it, uh, we're now looking at uh, somewhere above 70%. So we're estimating about 72% of the market is now legalized. Uh, so that's really, really encouraging, and we're really pleased with that. Was there a demand for uh, vape? Uh, how much does do these vape products, um, you know, make up the overall cannabis sales in Newfoundland and Labrador? Well, vape, uh, in the first quarter, um, vape made up a little over $2 million in sales in the quarter. So on an annualized basis, you know, you're looking at you know, roughly 8 to $9 million per year. And in terms of our total cannabis sales in the quarter, that would have been about 11% of, of our total retail cannabis sales in the province. So it is a significant factor, and it's a significant portion of the sales. Any other highlights? The other highlights, uh, you know, we're continuing to focus, I think, Linda, as much as we possibly can on just being the very best that we can be. Uh, we've had a store renovation program that's been underway now for about uh, 
almost three years, and uh, we were excited because we were able to complete that program in Grand Falls, Windsor, in Port of Basque, in Stephenville, as well as two locations in Mount Pearl. And I think that, for us, like I say, is a really important piece of giving customers the kind of experience they want uh, when they go into the store. And uh, we also launched uh, this summer the uh, new Screech as well. Uh, so that's something that's been out in the market, and uh, we've been really, really pleased with the way that that's been received as well. So you uh, say that uh, sales were up uh, slightly, um, but that the dividends paid to government were actually quite high. Uh, it was. The dividend for the quarter was $48 million, and, and there may be on a quarter-by-quarter basis a little bit of variation on that depending on what um, just what the business needs are. Uh, but yeah, like I say, we're still on track to uh, deliver a dividend in excess of $200 million this year, and we're still feeling positive that we'll be able to do that by the time we get to the end of this fiscal year. So overall, like I say, we're pretty encouraged in terms of our ability to, to do that and to provide that money to government so that they can direct it towards the various programs and services that they provide. Any updates on um, government's review of uh, NLC and the like to see if, you know, it might be privatized or uh, if uh, it will continue to operate as it is? Uh, we're working on the basis that it continues to operate as it is. Um, for us, as I say, we're very much focused on being the very, very best that we can be uh, in all respects, um, from a commercial perspective, from a regulatory perspective, and so on. And for us, like I say, that's very much a question with government, and, and we'll leave that with them. Bruce Keating, I do appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Linda. And Bruce Keating, of course, is the CEO of the NLC. Well, Music NL today announced the nominees for its 2023 awards. Leading the pack this year is Nico Paolo with seven nominations, followed by Mallory Johnson and Jason Benoit with six nods each. CEO Rhonda Tulk Lane had this chat with VOCM's Richard Duggan about this year's awards. We strive for respectful relationships with all people of this province as we search for collective healing and true reconciliation and honor of this beautiful land together. Music NL stands behind this with not only words, but action. We will continue to offer The Path, an Indigenous online learning course offered by the Canadian Live Music Association to our members, free of charge, and a new endeavor for us. We are committed to exploring or starting to explore one of the recommendations that came out of the call to action, recommendation number 83, during our program refresh, which you're about to hear more of in the coming weeks and its launch. We will explore establishing a funding priority and a strategy, a strategy for Indigenous and non-Indigenous artists to undertake collaborative projects and produce work that contribute to the reconciliation project. Good morning. My name is Rhonda Talk Lane, and I'm the CEO of Music Newfoundland and Labrador. Welcome, valued members, sponsors, special guests, Councillor Hickman, and all those joining online. We are online, correct? Awesome. Hi, everyone online. None of this could have happened today without a strong team behind the brand, a small group of powerful, committed people. My staff, Mariana, Sarah, Manijay, Chanel, Addison, and Ryan, thank you. 
the directors of Music NL, Nigel Jenkins, Mary Beth Waldrum, David Smallwood, Taya Morash, Aeon Sheehad, Derek Sturge, Lindsay Wareham, Heather Stamp Noons, Leonard Pecor, and Krista Vinson, who are all unsung heroes in supporting and advocating for our membership in the sector. All the jurors that we pulled in from all across Canada and our advisors and mentors. And also thank you to our valued member, Nick Decker, who's up there on sound tech and live streaming. Way to go, Nick. This is actually the first time Music NL is actually using its own space that we rent to live stream this event today. So this is something our members can rent and do. And uh, as we get better at live streaming, it's going to rock and roll and you can reach the world from here and have a recording. This year... We had just under 500 applications submitted by 184 members, which is amazing. I've been around the block, and when you are running award shows, getting nominations and applications can be a struggle. You often see it's extended. But with over 500 applications, we're uh, doing pretty awesome. So before we get into the reason you're all here today, which is our nominees, we are so proud to tell you about something very special, something very new that we've launched for the first time this year. This year, we're launching a new category for L'Artist Group Francophone de l'année. And this, um, I have to say a special thank you to Agnes Mamet, who's here with us today, for providing support and sage guidance as we explored what this could look like. Agnes works with the Réseau Cultural Francophone de Terre-Neuve et Labrador. This also was advocated by one of our members, Adrian House, who called and said, why don't you introduce this award? And we saw no reason why. And that is Rhonda Telk Lane, uh, who was um, announcing the nominees for the 2023 Music NL Awards uh, this morning at, uh, I think it was, Gower Street United. Um, Claudette, it looks like it's raining. Is it raining out there now? Oh, it looks a little bit. Awful it's hard for me to dark. tell. It's dark. Yeah. It's dark. It's, it's hard it's to tell from my vantage mm-hmm. right now. But uh, if it's not raining yet, it's going to be raining very soon. And I understand that this weather has caused a bit of a cancellation. Yeah, it has. Uh, the Silver Shadow cruise ship uh, should have arri- or should be arriving tomorrow to visit uh, the Port of St. John's, but it has been uh, canceled. So uh, the next time a cruise ship will ar- arrive, or the next ship, I should say, is coming up on September 7th with the National geographic explorer it's tough because the cruise ships come in this time of year when we do tend to get a bit of this instability in the atlantic you know so uh yeah unfortunate i know a lot of people look forward to seeing the cruise ships coming in and uh and all those uh, friendly faces getting off those boats that's too bad but uh that's the way it is if it's if the captain says we're not going the captain is the last word on these the matters. The last word. It would have been great, though, because this is the final weekend for the Downtown Pedestrian Mall as yeah, well. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. yeah. They're missing out, They're those passengers. They're going to miss out, and it's going to be such a lovely weekend, too, by uh, all accounts. So, uh, anyway, um, be careful out there. If you happen to be traveling around in this wet weather, be aware that hydroplaning is a distinct possibility. Take your time. Uh, you'll get where you're going. And, um, you know, in the areas where we're getting some really torrential rain, if you don't need to be out, um, don't take the chance uh that's it for us for to for now we'll be back tomorrow do join us then thanks for listening everyone